You're listening to Nuts and Bolts, a podcast about gear and music. With some of your favorite artists, I will dive into the practicalities of how they make their work. Twisting those knobs and pushing those buttons. Hi, this is Jessica Slichter from Nuts and Bolts. In an unusual twist, I'm filling in for a last-minute cancellation, and I get to talk to you today about how I use and think about gear in my practice. But before we get to that, did you know that Nuts and Bolts at this point is a small international team of artists who are also making an amazing series of gear tutorial videos? You can subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nutsandbolts. And if you like what you see there and hear here, then please consider supporting us on patreon.com slash nutsandbolts so that we'll be able to continue our activity. Now that that's out of the way, let's dive in. I ride you like a horse of undefined, weakly, wobbly. Wouldn't you throw me off now? bit of a dork. I have uh, parents who are classical musicians and um, I went to the music academy where I studied jazz singing and from an early age I've been composing really a lot and at the music academy my teachers were not interested in helping me with that. So when there was this little inheritance in the family that allowed me to purchase some basic gear when I was about 20 years old this opened up a whole new world of possibility for me. I got a laptop, an electric piano, uh, the Mbox interface with Pro Tools on it. I started to work on the, the basic version of uh, Ableton Live, and I got this Shure SM58. Not only did this setup allow me to start playing gigs more easily, but also I used it to document and develop my compositional work. I would just play whatever I could get my hands on and record it and overdub these clouds of vocal harmonies and whatever, and panning and automating obsessively and messing around with the inbuilt effects in Ableton Live. So from an early age, recording has become a very integrated part of my process as a composer. And it's has happened here and there that I would actually use parts of recorded improvisations or recorded partial improvisations and just transcribe those and use them in a final composition. In fact, Last I Ever Waited from Balls and Kittens is almost entirely freely improvised. 
and uh, also the dream dealer very much and Everly. You know, sometimes the way that you improvised a certain word on a certain pitch with precisely with your voice, it just works really well and it's really catchy that way and you just can't find a replacement for it. So then, you know, just keep it and build the rest of the song around it. Had I not recorded those improvisations, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, yeah, like I said, I was also using that setup live, uh, using effects on vocals and little Casio synth and playing samples. And uh, I went with my mom to a music shop to uh, to try and find me something to amplify me uh, at home and at gigs. And the dude at the music shop sold me a bona fide stage monitor. This must be like 15 kilos or something. And uh, we didn't know what the heck we were doing. So anyway, obviously I only played like two or three gigs with that. It was just impossible. But then I got some good advice and traded it in for a portable AER amp, which is a perfect tiny little amp uh, for a pretty clean vocal sound. When I think back now to how many possibilities that first batch of gear opened up for me, and the level of independence that it provided me, it it makes me aware of how significant gear is in a musician's practice. It's very much connected to work and income. It doesn't matter if you're a gearhead or if you're a gear fetishist or not, it's, it's irrelevant. Here's a little outtake uh, of a track from my first solo EP, The Forming of the Shaping which I released under the unfortunate moniker J, that's J and then the Norwegian letter AE combined, which I recorded myself with uh, my laptop mic playing all the instruments and also mixed it myself. And Helge Stein, who's known as uh, Death Prod, he insisted that we keep my mix and he just uh, mastered it. Uh, it's pretty corny stuff, so just to warn you in advance. My boys, you know, they're always so engaged in all kinds of things. They don't have time too much on their mind, oh, Daniel. Look, there I go. In Holland, there's no space either. After that, I did some collaborative records where I played electric guitar badly. And uh, then I made my first solo full-length record called Balls and Kittens, Draft and Strangling Rain. The, the corn had not yet uh, left me at that point, it took a while. Um, <laughs> but uh, this record was from the era of uh, freak folk. And uh, so I chose to record it in an analog studio. I still really dig the texture of that sound actually. And um, at that point in time, you know, I, I wasn't clued into sites like Gear Sluts or tutorials on YouTube. I had no idea. I just had my one or two trusty gear dude friends uh, who I'd ask the occasional question. Producing for me was very much the extension of arrangement. So it was about choosing instruments and vocalists due to the certain textures of their sound and how to layer those textures and 
you know, what to ask of musicians. Can you improvise like this? Can you play that kind of a sound? Stuff like that. At that time, I had this uh, strange obsession with squealing. Um, I have a tendency for weird vocal obsessions, uh, just to give you a heads up. For Fear in the Framing, my second solo record, I recorded basic tracks with the ensemble with my friend Juhani Silvola as recording engineer. And then I recorded all the overdubs myself. Helga Steen, who I mentioned earlier, he recommended me a second-hand Metric Halo ULN 2, expanded with a 2D card. And that has been the best gear investment that I've ever made. You're listening to it now. It's high-quality preamps are great. It's only two channels, but it's super reliable and solid. I've howled it across the globe, and it just keeps working. Um, and it makes me think about how important community is for musicians, because I wouldn't have known about Metric Halo if it weren't for Helga. And it was a friend of his who offered it secondhand. And he, of course, knew that, okay, this person can be trusted and blah, blah, blah. And this is not an isolated uh, instance. Of course, these things happen all the time. So it's interesting to think about. Um I also got a Röde NT2000 mic, which is a kind of half-decent condenser vocal mic, which you're also listening to uh, at this moment. Because Yuani was using Pro Tools for our sessions, I also started to use Pro Tools as my main DAW at that time, and I still do today. Um, so this was really my recording setup for Fear in the Framing, for doing the all the overdubs. And for that record, I worked more with amplification, with heavier effect usage, and some very simple synthesizer work. Uh, but I was starting to yearn more and more for these darker soundscapes, which inevitably led me more and more into the realm of technology. At that time, I also got a MicroKorg XL, which I want to say is kind of the entry-level synth of that time. 
And uh, pedal-wise, I mean, I've never been a big pedal head, but crucially, I got this uh, Vocoloco pedal, which you've heard come by in Nuts and Bolts more often. It's this uh, preamp pedal that allows you to basically put any loop of guitar pedals on your vocal mic without getting, you know, feedback problems, ground issues and stuff. And I also got the Electro Harmonics uh, Cathedral Stereo Reverb, which I still use today. It's it's light-ish, it's simple, it's sturdy. Um, I've used it a lot to, for instance, create these freeze effects where you can, with the palm of your hand, you hold the infinite button, and then with your fingers at the same time, you can turn the, the mix and the reverb time and the feedback. Um, it's basically, it's quite a, a limited pedal, but it's uh, very practical to use. <laughs> to Seattle, where I recorded A Sense of Growth with Randall Dunn. We co-produced the record together, and he was also the mixing and recording engineer. Uh, so it was a really great opportunity for me to learn more about really the technological side of producing. Um, I kept my eyes and my ears peeled. I did a lot verbally at that point, but I also uh, was able to turn some knobs and I also recorded part of the overdubs myself. Again, I did a ton of editing as usual. One of the great takeaways from making that record was getting a proper introduction to synthesizers. Uh, watching Randall and Tim Mason get this really big range of different sounds from the instruments, but also how uh, Randall layered them smartly and creatively. And you can hear some of that, for instance, in this track, Mercilessly Clear. I'm thrown down and I wrestle with it Try frantically to turn away my mind's
It does nothing but be made out of pressed uh, wood chip. It's called the silver tone. It had a little amplifier actually built into its case. It was kind of phenomenal. Around that time, I was going to move from Norway to Germany, and I was kind of concerned about how I was going to make a living because funding opportunities in Germany are a lot less than in Norway. And uh, making these kind of records, you know, going to Seattle to record, etc. I could never have done that if it weren't for this amazing Norwegian uh, system. I wanted, therefore, to try and become more independent in being able to record and mix my own records, but also to start to record and mix for other people as well, as a possible side gig, you know. So, speaking of that amazing Norwegian uh, grant system, I applied for and was lucky to get a specific gear grant. With that, I got a plug-in bundle from Universal Audio, Atom A77X studio monitors, and a pair of Rode NT55 small diaphragm condenser mics. UAD makes plugins that are digital remakes of classical studio hardware uh, in collaboration with those original uh, companies. Uh, my favorites from what I have so far uh, are the Neve 1073, which I tend to use only minimally as an EQ and mostly for the color and the boost of the preamp. I also like the EMT 140 plate reverb, which you hear here. Ha! And the, the Galaxy, Galaxy Tape yeah, Echo, yeah, yeah, which, yeah, is which is a remake of the, the classic yeah, Roland Space Roland Echo. Space. Had I known at that time about more affordable, good alternatives, I may have gotten those. A downside to the UAD plugins is that you need this external DSP accelerator, which again costs money, and uh, I like to travel light. And I like to travel with my recording and mixing gear. Or, uh, I used to anyway. <laughs> On the other hand, what I really dig about the UAD plugins is that they offer this aspect which would be a key aspect of classic studio hardware that you'd be looking for, which is not so much the effect as that simply running your signal through it gives a certain character and color to your sound, which is hard to pin down what is it exactly, but it just makes it sound in a certain way. And I do really like to have that as an artistic possibility. The Röde NT55s are a nice medium price alternative to Neumann 184s, and they're great for recording acoustic stuff like harp, uh, percussion, acoustic guitar, for example. 
my new home studio was in my bedroom, which was very empty and sounding terrible. So I also took that uh, opportunity to dive into the master handbook of acoustics and, of course, gear sluts and YouTube and really dive into room acoustics to make my own acoustic treatment, which was fun to do, by the way. I recommend it. I already had this interest in feedback, especially electroacoustic feedback. Uh, so this brought it really full circle um, for my 2018 piece Movements 1, I placed the acoustic ensemble Toyen Philoclaferie in this shifting electroacoustic feedback space, um, you know, just using a DAW interface and mics. And um, how the feedback would interact with what the ensemble played would vary according to which room they were in, because each room would have different resonances, different room modes. So I, I get off on this kind of stuff. It really gets me going. On my latest solo record, Polycrisis Yes, I uh, went back to that cathedral reverb pedal and used it on several occasions intensively. On the track, uh, The Great Unveiling, which uh, got featured in the HBO series, The New Pope, Ina Sachstuen and I uh, simultaneously recorded uh, feedback tracks uh, with two different pedal loops. And then recording engineer Bjarne Stensley ran this through a Binson echo rec. I was so crazy about that Binson track that afterwards um, in the editing room, let's say, I rearranged this piece drastically and I gave that Binson track center stage and did a lot of layering. The direct signal is only in there here and there. Here she is, combined with a modular synth and an ARP Odyssey.
in the process of making Polycrisis, yes, I worked closely with Benjamin Nelson and took a couple of lessons from him about uh, synthesis basics. And uh, I used uh, Proteus 1 from Emu Systems. This is a wonderfully corny 80s rec synth uh, on some of the pieces, which my master's program teacher gave to me. Thank you, Cher. Um, I also used it live for a while until it died a sudden death on stage mid-song. Uh, and I mixed Polycrisis Yes in uh, collaboration with drummer and engineer Shire Lostad. It was a logical choice because on this record I blurred the lines between effect usage as instrumental and as a mixing tool from both sides. On the mixing side, that meant, for example, in The Dream Has Died, I used extreme bandpass EQing combined with the Sound Toys Echo Boy to manipulate these vocal clusters and create a kind of ghost sounds. Um, in the synth part of that piece, I used the Eventide H9102 plugin by UAD and some other tricks to create artificial resonances and helicopter-esque movements in these many-layered synths. I also ventured into regular mixing, and Shire was an excellent mixing buddy for that, because he just knew whatever I didn't know, I think. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I just studied and prepared, and I kept my eyes and my ears peeled as we were working, picking up tips and stuff. And um, since then, I've also continued reading, watching, doing, and slowly developing. And I'm starting to work for other people uh, as well, which is exciting. Live at the time, I was using a Roland Boutique Juo 6. It's super compact, light, and accessible, easy to use. It has um, aspects in it of the classic Juno 60 and 106 synths. And for its size and price, it's, it's really great. And for the purpose of touring. But it's it's pretty limited in what you can do with it and kind of flimsy with the knobs. And I was ready for more and also for more body, you know. And so while I was in tour in Japan, I got uh, this MS-20 Mini semi-modular synth on a 50% discount. It was a store model. And that was really great. It is a good choice for starting to get you know, more acquainted with synthesis. To force myself to get deeper into the instrument, I made this piece with composer Sarah Hennies, where I play only the MS-20. And to play Polycrisis Yes live, I when I played solo, for instance, I would combine it with a mini tower and a small Mackie mixer and Eventide Space Reverb. The Eventide Space Reverb I would recommend for people who want to have, like, a good quality a reliable reverb on tour so you don't have to rely on whether you manage to work it out with the sound engineer <laughs> but you can just bring it along no matter where you are you're going to have this good sounding reverb then also to dive further into synthesis i did a composer's residency at the amazing ems in stockholm the electron music studio 
last year uh, where I worked with their amazing Buchla modular system and uh, their wonderful in-house technicians also help you out. So you learn a ton. I'm not sure yet if I'm going to go the modular route because like right now I want to focus on getting a deeper understanding of the things that I already have. And then we'll see. For nuts and bolts, um, I want to mention that I got this Zoom H6, which I have to say has become a pretty key piece of gear for me. I've used it as a stage interface when touring because it's super small and light. Uh, suddenly when rehearsing in Ramallah and such and such is missing for me to make sound, I can use the Zoom as a mixer. Uh, or doing an ensemble piece, I can use the Zoom to offer this rare low-voltage phantom power that this lavalier mic needs. And of course, it just gives decent quality for recording something like a podcast. Um, it's easy to navigate and hard to break. And uh, for nuts and bolts, I also use the Isotope RX because sound problems keep occurring. It's, it's life. A little handling noise here, a little background noise there. Um, and sometimes it's hard to fix with regular EQ. So I have to say I'm not sold yet on all the, the aspects of this uh, Isotope RX, but the spectral repair is uh, hard to beat. It's, it's really very quick and good for certain common problems. Well, that's about it, I think. Um, I would just say that, you know, I'm not interested in gear fetishism, but I'm interested in gear as musical instruments, and I'm also interested in gear as something that can create and facilitate work. Yet at the same time, not all people have equal access to gear. Obviously, gear costs money, and you also need a good social structure where that knowledge gets distributed, disseminated, and you get your tips. It's all connected to each other and it becomes inevitably resonant of marginalizations that already exists in society. So I think that's interesting stuff to think about because I would like there to be equal opportunity. But anyway, so much for politics. Thank you so much for listening to Nuts and Bolts, yet another season is done. Let's meet again next year. Do look us up on YouTube, Instagram, and Patreon. Thanks to Nopa and Norsk Kulturfond for supporting this episode. Editing and engineering by yours truly, Jessica Slichter. And on behalf of the whole team, have a great summer.